problem with suicide is that when it occurs it re-traumatizes everyone in the community so even the professionals tend to mute their responses to it because of shame I'm Jenny Doctor, and this is Sacred Teachings. The song you just heard is a prayer lament written and sung by Dixie Bird from Treaty 6 Territory in Saskatchewan. Dixie is Cree and one of our rising stars. In this episode, called The Blue Horse, Peter Downey interviews the inspirational elder, the Reverend Dr. Martin Brokeleg of the Lakota Nation. Thanks, Ginny. You know, it's understandable that discussing suicide is difficult, both privately and publicly. At different times in human history, it's been condemned as a sin, punished as a crime, dismissed as the act of the mentally unstable, and perhaps most offensively, ridiculed as the easy way out. All of this leads to a damaging silence. Damaging because silence perpetuates the stigma. It feeds the shame and guilt, and it does nothing to counter the misconceptions and all the false information. One of the contradictions of suicide is that, while it may very well be the most intimate and private decision any human being can make, it also has a profound and very public impact. What happens is not only the grief felt, of course, by the loved ones and friends in the wake of a suicide, but it also has the power to force family, friends, and even a community to wrestle with all the what-ifs. More guilt, more shame, more silence. Dr. Martin Brokenleg has consulted and led training programs throughout North America, New Zealand, Europe, Australia, and South Africa. His emphasis has been on helping Indigenous youth find hope in the future. Dr. Brokenleg, thanks so much for doing this. I, I, I guess the best place to start is with the most basic question, and that is, why is suicide still such a problem with young Indigenous people? Do you have a sense of why this tragedy continues? Yes, it is chronic uh, and acute and always has been, I think. Um, and I say this having been a professional psychologist for almost 50 years 
and an Anglican priest for 50 years. Um, you're right to emphasize young people because that's one of the unique dynamics in indigenous suicide. It's, it, we already see an elevated risk at the age of eight. It incrementally increases by the age of 10. It peaks from the ages of 18 to 30. And after the age of 30, it starts a gradual decline. So mostly what we have to do is get kids to the age of 30. Um, if you put that in contrast to Canadians with European ancestry, we tend to see in that population a very low rate of suicide risk until the age of 65. And then after 65, that, that, that increase is geometric. It's not, it's not gradual, it is profound for, for Canadians with European ancestry. And I think some of the differences are that, that for that population, their eldership is not a widespread model. Uh, so elders have no purpose if you're not working, you're useless in a productive consumerist society. Uh, and so it's after 65 that Canadians with not with European ancestry are most at risk. But for indigenous populations, life looks hopeless from the very beginning. Um, and I think that's that's the issue. We are dealing with we are dealing with one of the major symptoms of intergenerational trauma. It's a concept that I have emphasized over and over that anyone who deals with indigenous people has to know that every indigenous person you're dealing with is living with enormous amounts of intergenerational trauma. It affects us in all of our aspects, our ability to, to see reality, our ability to process life emotionally, our spirituality, our sexuality, every aspect of our humanness, even our genetic legacy is influenced by intergenerational trauma. And one of the outcomes of, of all of that is the despair and depression that are probably the most, I used to have a mentor who would say that depression is the most painful of all human experiences because it's the only one people are willing to die to try to escape. And that's what we're seeing with suicide. So is that something that can be overcome? Or, or is it naive to think that we're ever going to end, end that kind of hopelessness? I'm glad you used that word because I, I wanted to talk to you about where hope comes from. But I just, I, it's so overwhelming that you're kind of left with, what are we doing here? Are we doing the right thing? Can we get can we get on top of this in a sense? Yes, I think we can eventually, but it will be a gradual, slow process. Look how many centuries it's taken for intergenerational trauma occurring over and over again. See, I, I think human beings are designed to get over occasional trauma. All of us have had our emotional systems overwhelmed by something in our life. And we may be fortunate enough to have two or three of those things in our lifetime. But no one gets over it if it's chronic, if it's every single day, or if it is so intense when you're a child growing up in a residential school environment, or you're being beaten by your parents because that's all they knew when they went to residential school. Uh, those kinds of dynamics even change our genetic legacy. For example, about a year ago, pediatricians in the Netherlands were astonished to see newborns uh, showing symptoms of near starvation, even though the mothers had adequate nutrition during their pregnancies. But of course, if you have lived long enough like I have to know that there was an end to World War II, you know that in 1944, almost everyone in the Netherlands nearly starved to death because there wasn't enough food at the end of the war. It wasn't until 1946 that food started to become a little bit more plentiful in the Netherlands. Well, that changes the genetic legacy of the people who experience that so that their children and their grandchildren are, have inherited the genetic, genetics of someone who has nearly faced starvation. That's what's happening with indigenous populations. 
our ancestors, our grandparents, our great grandparents, our in my case, my parents went to residential school, they survived, but they were deeply affected by that situation. And, and they have passed that on to me. And I've passed it on to my children and to my grandchildren. So it will take a long time, but we can, we can make very positive efforts. And one of the biggest ones is to simply become an ally, just to listen without judgment, just to be supportive and nod and say, I'm, I'm trying to understand. If those connections to that past trauma are still, I mean, as you say, genetically uh, there, um, why aren't there connections to a time when life before colonization and that resilience and that strength, is, can those connections be recovered, do you think? I think they can be. And one of the biggest signs of those, I think, is what, what I have written about is what I call belonging. I've written about what I call the circle of courage. It's the ways in which indigenous communities try to instill resiliency in um, young, young people. And they did that by providing four life experiences, belonging, mastery, a sense of uh, empowerment with, with independence, um, and uh, generosity. Those feed the, the normal new human conditions, human needs for being important. That's what belonging does for us. For, for having a sense of accomplishment, that's what a sense of competency, that's mastery. Um, having realizing you have some power inside of yourself at all times. That's we're calling that independence. We might have said responsibility, but we use the word independence. And then a, a person has to continually be in touch with his or her source of goodness, and that's what we mean by the experience of generosity. So you're you're right that those can be. Those can be fostered, and the chief sign with contemporary indigenous populations in Canada is that sense of belonging. We have relatives, we have kinsfolk, we have grandmothers, we have grandchildren, and what that means is that we're still here. In all that we have endured for the last 500 years, we are still here. There are more of us now than there were 500 years ago. We are surviving. We're beaten and we're bruised and we're limping and we're broken, but we're here. That's resiliency. Hmm. What has buried those connections, those, those really critical connections to what you've just said? They've been, they've been smothered. They've been pushed down, uh, it seems to me. What, what's at play there? What are the dynamics of that, of that sequence, if I can call it that? Well, I think it's because the community is so damaged by constant racism. Um, I, I've discovered, I grew up in the States and then moved to Canada and fell in love with it and it's, it's my permanent home. Um, Canadians don't like to talk about racism, but it's here. Probably the last four years have brought to the surface elements that have been floating around Canadian society for a very long time. Um, and it, it's only that it's being, uh, that there are certain elements that are that felt uh, comfortable enough to show themselves and we see how much racism there is in Canada. And Canadians somehow think it's impolite to notice someone else's ethnicity, but I don't think it is. I think that, because, well, here, here's what triggered it for me. Years ago, I had an elderly friend who said, I don't even think of you as a native person. And I felt insulted, but I couldn't figure out why. It took me several days of thinking about it to realize that that's a part of who I am. It's how I present myself. I'm, I'm very pleased to be from the Lakota nation. I, I, I like being who I am. I don't want it used to limit me, 
but but it's an acknowledged part of myself. Imagine if I said to you, I don't even think of you as a man. Well, that would be kind of bizarre because that's a part of your identity and how you would present yourself in the world. So so noticing someone's ethnicity and or race is not a bad thing. Um, particularly if we can do it in an affirmative, positive way, uh, as uh, the Gospels tell us, as the Book of Revelation shows us, people from every nation uh, have, a, have a place in the world. Uh, but in any case, um, I think what's happened with, with racism and discrimination, even especially systemic racism, see, because in general, most, almost every Canadian I've met is a nice person. They're polite. But systemic racism operates in systems and in processes, regardless of the, the values and the wishes of the people who are in it. Um, it's in the way the system works, uh, rather, than, rather than in the, the, I hope, rather than in the wills and values of the individuals who, make, who are a part of that system. All of those have suppressed indigenous communities as a whole. Like I say, there's not a one of us that hasn't been deeply wounded by the, by the past. Uh, that's the reason I became a psychologist, was I thought I was going into psychology because I was interested, and it turns out it's out of my own brokenness that I decided to become a, psychologi a psychologist. I was always trying to figure out, how did I get this way? What can I do to make my community better? And well, the problem with suicide is that when it occurs, it re-traumatizes everyone in the community so even the professionals tend to mute their responses to it because of shame. Shame and trauma are very close cousins. Shame and guilt would be okay because guilt is realizing I've done something wrong and I can correct it. It's being embarrassed about a misbehavior of some particular kind. The difference between that and shame is that shame becomes personalized. I become embarrassed by who I am, by my identity. By my, by, my, by my race. And shame always mutes people who could otherwise be supportive. So indigenous communities are loath to talk about suicide even. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, you say that, that Canadians generally don't like to talk about racism. And I, I think all of us don't really like to talk about suicide. And I, I've been thinking a lot about like where that discomfort comes from. Is it because it frightens us? I mean, we don't, just as an example, it seems to me we don't have an issue with somebody who's in their, say, late 80s, facing a terminal disease, with making the decision to end their life or having the ability to do that. But if it's a nine-year-old in Baker Lake, what is it about that, that that bothers us so much? Well, I think you, you've, you've touched on exactly the point. It's embarrassing. Uh, we, we, we have difficulty speaking about death. And you would think being Christians, we, we, we practice talk about death every day of our lives, but still we're, we're loath to speak of it. I think one of the oddest phrases that I now find amusing when I hear it is, if I die. It's a pretty sure thing. <laughs> Why would we say if I die? What we should be saying is when I die, because that's inevitable. Um, we, we don't like to talk about this. One of the courses I put in the curriculum when I was teaching at Vancouver School of Theology was a course on aging and end of life. And one of the one of the group activities we had was we passed around a talking stick and each person was to say when he or she received it, the day is coming when I will no longer exist in this world. And some of the students had a, couldn't say it. 
it took them the longest time to be able to, to acknowledge their, that their own death is coming. Mm. So we're, you're, you're right, we are uncomfortable with the general idea of death, but especially for youth and children, because we imagine that they are carrying the hope and the potential of the future. I just earlier today was reading that apparently in Arabic, there is a very, um, there is a blessing which older people will say to children in Arabic. It's something like, um, I hope you will bury me. Meaning, may you live long, may you outlive me, may in the order of all things, my children or my grandchildren bury me. It's, it's realistic and according to the usual schedule of we imagine for life. But when a child ends their life because they're so hopeless early on, it's the hopelessness that's difficult for us to see. It's the fact that death has come too soon. It's hard to talk about when death itself is a difficult topic for us to talk about. I mean, I read something where, where the author said, what is, what is frightening about suicide among young people is that it sends them, and I mean repeated suicides, constant exposure to this, is that it sends the message to everybody in that community. Not only I can kill myself, but especially to young people, it sends the message, this is permissible. This is a, this is a permissible option and and that you know obviously has lots of problems and difficulties associated with it it does exactly that I, i've seen this in my own family uh, not too long ago we buried my niece uh, she decided to end her life at the age of 22 uh, while my in the next room from where my sister was sitting uh, in our in our family home um, it, it, it does give that impression that somehow it is permissible and it is acceptable. You're, I think you're right about that. Um, what I hope is that, is that we see that in the face of it, we have to emphasize the opposite. There's a place in Deuteronomy, I think, where God says to the people of Israel, I place before you life and death, therefore choose life. And I'm hoping that eventually we will come to emphasize living a full life rather than suicide prevention. Because the more we talk about suicide, and which we have to, to understand, we have to look at darkness in order to understand it. But every time we repeat it, we, we give it longevity. And what we ought to be doing instead is, is flipping that over and emphasizing the opposite. Let's live well. Let's live today fully. It's what people do in... Um, in palliative care. They take the patients who are there, whose lives are limited, and they try to live each day as fully as they can given the conditions in that person's life. Well, we should all be living that way. Living each day and each life as fully as we can. The example I have often used when I'm talking to youth workers is I say, try not to think of a blue horse. Think of anything else, don't picture a blue horse. You can pick, pick another color, don't anybody think of a blue horse. Well, you can't do it because I keep saying blue horse. It's like saying suicide, don't kill yourself, don't kill yourself, don't kill yourself. Uh, we can't get away from that impression. What we should be saying is how can we live life fully? What can I do to help you live today completely? That's tricky though, isn't it? I mean, not to ignore what's going on, but I mean, you have to acknowledge what's going on. But by acknowledging it, I mean, are you suggesting that that, that is part of the problem is, is recognizing what's going on? Well, like I say, we need to glance at darkness to understand it. But we should always be turning our faces to the light. 
that that's going to be the ultimate outcome. And I, th I think when we look at anything that, any lessons that come out of the Gospels, that's what they do. They glance at darkness, but always emphasize the light that's there. Uh, not that we want to, this is not Pollyanna-ish. This is simply saying, let's recognize the dark forces that are around us. And let's find some little things that we can do to, to counter them in reasonable kinds of ways. And like I say, for indigenous populations, we need allies. We need, we need people who will listen, who will just be present and say, I can't imagine all the troubles you have in your urban community or your reserve. Um, but if you want to talk, I can, I can listen. I can't fix it maybe, but I can listen. It's that human connection. And that's one of the funda fundamental strengths in resiliency. The uh, conditions of contemporary life really are the conditions of despair. And I, th and I think that's, that's new because if you think about, I remember being quite startled reading a historian who said, had European colonization not occurred, indigenous life might have gone on for centuries because it had reached a point of stasis and um, was balanced enough that it probably could have gone on for generations without having to make any major adjustments. But colonialization did occur, colonization did occur, wars occurred, uh, land loss occurred, displacement occurred, and residential schools occurred. And so uh, the conditions of despair were all, were all uh, fertilized and uh, we're seeing those results still. And that despair was 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 not evident pre-colonization. I mean, no, yeah. no, it, it, it would not have been. I just thinking of contemporary factors uh, contributing to this um, to this pandemic. I, I we spoke with Vivian Seegers in Vancouver, who works with um, a lot of Indigenous people who mm -hmm. are who are on the streets, and she said that the the problem with COVID was that people are kind of only with people who are in the same situation as they are. So they can't get out and see, you know, the, the, the ladder of hope in, in a sense. They can't, they can't climb out of that situation. Do you see COVID as, as, a, as an issue when it comes to, to suicide in, let's say, in remote communities? I think we will see the consequences of it, even for maybe another generation. Uh, something with this impact isn't going to go away easily. Even if we get all the vaccines done as is hoped, uh, even though we start to see a fall in numbers, even though the variants um, do not become more lethal than they are, although there's speculation that that might be the case, the variations are more, more deadly than the original form, there's still going to be the psychological outcome being isolated. I was thinking my my one of my granddaughters turns five years old on Thursday. She went to her mother a couple of weeks ago and she said, can I please have a friend? I don't have a friend. Because she went from being a, a solitary toddler to being a should be socialized in kindergarten, um, grade five kid, or a five-year-old kid. And in that time span, she's been isolated all this time. So she doesn't really know what it's like to have a friend, to have someone she can, fight with and play with and uh, hug and uh, take toys away from. Uh, that's, not, that's not a part of her life experience so far. And who knows what kinds of implications those will have. So I think we'll see long-term consequences from the COVID. Um, but as I keep reminding indigenous communities, we've lived through pandemics before. Smallpox, typhoid, flu, 
what was the, the Haida nation into which I had been adopted, uh, had 98% deaths in the late 1800s, early 1900s, simply from flu. Uh, only 2% survived by, uh, by World War I, or by the 1918 flu epidemic. Uh, only 2% of Haida had survived from all of that time. So we, we've lived through this before, and we are resilient enough that we're still here. Uh, so I have every hope that, that some of the natural features in the community will be strong and strong enough, primarily the social contact and the spiritual, um, spirit, the spiritual energy. Um, but I think there will be some really long-term consequences that will come out of this. Do you think suicide is ever a valid choice? I have called suicide uh, a permanent solution to a temporary problem because it always is. I remember having a conversation with a young man I grew up with who had put a pistol in his mouth and pulled the trigger, uh, hoping he would kill himself when his marriage fell apart. And uh, the bullet came up through his skull but exited through the eye socket. And he did lose his eye, but he lived. And he said, as soon as I pulled the trigger, I knew it was a mistake. And I've often thought about that because I, 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 I think that it would be the case that would be the, some of, there would be a similar outcome in some cases. You know, there are some situations in which the person really does intend to end their life. So I may understand why it occurs, but uh, I still will oppose it because I do think it's a permanent solution to a temporary condition. But what if I said to you that I mean, if I was living in a glue lick and I said, there's nothing temporary about my problems? Mm -hmm. Well, that would certainly be the case if you lived on a reserve or if you lived in an impoverished downtown east side Vancouver fa indigenous family. It's probably not going to get better. Nonetheless, uh, you can guarantee that it won't get better if you end your life. The, the, the problem is that I think with a condition, with the circumstances that lead to suicide, um, the, the, the dynamics are primarily emotional. And emotion takes a very long time to process. Uh, when I had my therapy practice, the code I used to hear from I don't know how many clients was, I just want to get on with the rest of my life. What I understood the client to be saying in those circumstances is, I intellectually understand, but emotionally I'm not there because our emotions have their own pace and their own dynamics that we can't rush. We simply have to foster them and, and uh, accompany them as, how, as they unfold. And I think that's often the case with the conditions that lead to suicide. Where do you think we, we can find any hope in all of this uh, if we're going to move forward? What we can do, those of us who are choosing to live in this world, is do everything we can to try to foster a way forward, to be as present as we can, to be as supportive as we can, to try to keep someone living, living their life as fully as they can. And we can help them make choices, we can help them go to school, we can help them do whatever they, they can to try to make living in this world more bearable, uh, to, to make it as it ought to be. It, it, it's been given to us by God for a reason. Uh, uh, we want to use it well, live it fully. I'm so sorry for the loss of your niece. I thank you for talking to us and for helping us understand some of the forces at play here. You're welcome. It's, it's important and necessary, and that's why we need to do it. We need to keep talking about it 
because if we don't, uh, it will win. That's Dr. Martin Brokenleg. He's the co-author of the book, Reclaiming Youth at Risk, Our Hope for the Future. I'm Peter Downey. Thanks for listening. Nyawa Dixie, Brother Martin and Peter for helping us understand the dynamics of suicide on our land. Indeed, difficult, but definitely needed. A long time ago, a child said to me, I want to die. I was shocked, but asked, why do you say that? Well, she told me, because I want to go to heaven where everything is nice. I asked her what we could do to make it nice where we are, and she listed many things. I was blown away because I didn't realize how difficult life can be for children. Things weren't perfect for me growing up on the reserve, but we had resources to protect and grow our lives. When things got rough, we'd go into the woods, climb trees, dig for clay, wade in the stream, sleep under the stars, and dream of better places. Now Martin talks about the importance of belonging when we are children. And we have to embrace children and help them understand who they are and where they come from. In the words of Sitting Bull, we have to put our hearts and minds together to see what kind of life we can make for our children. We put great value on our elders for their wisdom, resilience, knowledge, and being the carriers of the culture. We have to put the same value on our young people. An elder native Alaskan priest grew weary of attending so many funeral potlatches for young people. A potlatch is a feast of food from the land, singing and dancing, indigenous songs, speeches, and many times a giveaway. He decided to hold a potlatch for young people to honor them for who they are and what they can bring to a community and what they were bringing then and there at that time. Sadly, he passed on, and I don't think what he started continues. But what is happening in many communities is teaching our young people about those things that were taken away. The language, our songs and ceremonies, the seven grandfather teachings. We just need more. And we have to remember our ancient prayers. Many First Nations have ceremonies to commemorate rites of passage, similar to the bar mitzvah of the Jewish tradition. They are beautiful ceremonies, and that's what we have to do restore the beauty in the lives of our people. The Navajo have a blessing way prayer. A few words are, with beauty before me, I am walking. With beauty all around me, I am walking. It is completed in beauty. We have to bring beauty into our lives and see what comes of that. It has been said that when we become complete beings, we reach generosity. And that is the best place to be. That time where we freely give, where we pass on what we have learned, where we share the memories of good life and how it was beautiful. Our people may not be rich with money, but there is a richness of spirit, faith, and hope that instills resiliency or survival against all odds. Nyawa, Ona, 
Jesus come way yo hey way yo hey way yo hey way yo hey I want you I Jesus come Jesus come way yo hey way yo hey way yo hey way yo hey I want you I need you I love you, Jesus come. Mm.